from 2400 Sports, Odyssey, and Major League Baseball. This is the PBP Voices of Baseball. We bring you the people who bring you the game. Hello, 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 and welcome into the PBP Voices of Baseball. Ah, September approaches. What a great baseball month. I know another sport starts. I forget exactly what it's called, but we rage. We baseball fans rage against the dying of the light that is the baseball season as football tries to take over. But here's the thing. We thrive. We thrive because there are incredible playoff races all over MLB. There are teams on fire like Seattle. The Cubs are making a push here locally, and that's incredibly fun. The Dodgers look truly great and ready to battle the Braves again. So much good stuff. And there's incredible episodes of the PBP coming next week. Oh, man, I want to tell you guys so bad who the guest is next week. We're going to make you wait until the end because that's how I roll. This episode right here features a man whose team is not playing meaningful pennant race related games. But they've still had a pretty good year. The Washington Nationals have some good young players, a few interesting pitchers, a healthy farm system, and a manager and a GM who both just got contract extensions. So, Bob Carpenter, the Nationals play-by-play man, is enjoying himself, as he has been for 18 years as the voice of Washington. He spent two different stints with the Cardinals before that, and also was at ESPN doing baseball and much more for like 16 years. But he is perhaps best known for his scorebook, which he developed in the 80s, started selling in the 90s, and I got to tell you, one of them sits on my desk right now. Got to talk to the man who wrote the book. He wrote the book, The Helping Friendly Book. Here is Bob Carpenter on the PVP. Bob Carpenter, it is a pleasure to have you on the show. Thank you so much for the time. Good to be with you, Matt. Thanks for having me on. Absolutely. So... You know, my nephew is a triple A broadcaster and he will eventually hire and fire me because that's how the world works. But anyway, <laughs> I, I, I as I was just kind of breaking into doing a few innings here and there, he was an, an up and coming broadcaster, as he still is. And 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 I said, so so let's talk about keeping score. And he said, by the Bob Carpenter scorebook. Just go buy the scorebook. And so I went to the website, I bought the scorebook, and I've always known how to do it, you know, learned from my dad and known a little bit, but I, I've got it dialed in. And I, of course, think of you every time I score now. So, and that must be a common thread in your life because I've talked now to so many broadcasters. Just what, a couple of weeks ago, Howie Rose of the Mets uses the Bob Carpenter scorebook. There must be. There, there must be dozens and dozens and dozens of working broadcasters who use the book. Have they all at different times reached out to you and, and, and touched base? Are you aware of the folks who are doing it with with your tools of the trade? Yeah, many of them have. And it's been very gratifying for me because, uh, I, you know, I started this thing back in 1984, which was my first year in the big leagues with the Cardinals. And uh, it's good to hear from guys. In fact, we were at Yankee Stadium for the last three days. We're in Miami now. But um, I had lunch yesterday with Ricky Ricardo, who does the Spanish radio for the Yankees. And he had a young man, um, Emmanuel, can't remember his last name, uh, at the table with him. 
and he was one of the single A guys at the uh, with the Hudson Valley Renegades. I think his partner is Joe Vasile, who has used my book for a number of years, and I had just actually talked on the phone with Joe last week, and uh, he had sent me a link, and I listened to his work and gave him a critique, and we had a conversation. And, uh, you know, this young man said, hey, I've been using your book for a couple of years. You know, thank you so much. And uh, I said, the feeling is mutual. And, you know, Matt, the big thing is anything that that scorebook can do for young broadcasters or old guys like me to make their job easier, to keep them organized. And it's one less thing to worry about as you get ready for a broadcast or a telecast. You know, that's pretty much what our objective has been. Because like I said, back in 1984, when I first started working with the Cardinals on TV, the first couple of months of the season, I was doing the game, the games out of a softball scorebook that I purchased at Buck Sporting Goods in Tulsa, Oklahoma, my hometown. <laughs> and so, uh, you know, I, I figured there's got to be something better out there. Well, there was no Internet in 1984. There was no way to go searching for a scorebook. So anyway... I went to Whitey Herzog, our manager, and said, hey, can I have a couple of blank uh, lineup cards? I'm thinking about designing a scorebook that I can use, and I want to use the bench players and the bullpen like a major league scorecard has so I can mix and match hitters and pinch hitters and pitchers as the game goes on toward the end of the ballgame. So, you know, when you look at the book and under the lineup you see the extra guys – and then next to the other team's pitchers, you see the bullpen box where you write in those names. That's where all that came from, from a from a big league lineup card back in 1984. So I, I went back to the hotel one night. I, I, we were on the road. I don't know where we were. And uh, I got out a ruler. I got out a, a legal pad and kind of laid out the grid and finally got it to where I thought it was a, a decent looking thing. I took it to a, a print, printing place down the street from my house in Tulsa. I think the first book had like, I don't know, 75 games in it or something like that. Because, you know, back back then, teams were not televising every game. And a lot of teams were not hardly televising home games at all. Hmm. So I think that first book had 60 or 75 games in it. Uh, my, my original big league schedule that first year was 52 games. So it was more than enough for me. And then as time went on, I'd be down at the batting cage. I'd have my scorebook tucked under my arm, and guys would say, hey, man, where'd you get that book? And I'd rip out a page and say, here, print one up yourself. That's where I got it. You know, I printed it myself. And eventually, in the mid-'90s, in 1995, we decided to start marketing the thing. We sent uh, brochures out to all the minor league teams that I could find in the Baseball America Guide. And then, uh, you know, got a pretty good response. I think we sold like 40 books that first year. Now we sell over 2,000 a year, uh, and that includes the fan book, which is a smaller book I designed for fans to bring to the ballpark. Because when Sammy Sosa and Marco McGuire were hitting all those home runs in 1998, fans were bugging me like, hey, I like your book. I want to keep score of this historic home run chase, but your book's too big to bring to the ballpark. So I designed a smaller book for the fans. That's become our most popular seller. And that's, uh, I tried to make a long story short, but that's kind of how the whole thing got started. Well, we've got time for the long story. And, um, and, <laughs> I, I, and, I, and I and the listeners to this podcast are more fascinated by this stuff than, than, than most audiences might be. So, you know, feel free. It, it, it's beautiful stuff because, 
I mean, there's a lot in there, but the language itself of scoring is such a beautiful thing. It's, it's so unique to obviously to baseball, but it's unique to this country too. You know, it's like, it, it, it is. it's, it's distinctive. It's distinctly American. It's linguistic, but it's also, it, it, it's just, it's just a very, very unique and wonderful thing. And the fact that everybody can mm-hmm. do it, even within the constructs of the book or however you do it, everybody can do it their own little way. And as long as you understand and uh, then then it, then it works. There's not many languages like that in the world, I don't think. Yeah, and that's that's what I tell fans too. Um, you know, however you want to keep score, that's your unique way of doing that. And you know, like you said, everybody has their own language. I had never really thought about the thought you just brought up about it being uniquely American. Because I don't know if anybody scores soccer games or football games across the pond. I don't know if anybody scores cricket games, you know, in other parts of the world. Uh, I don't know if you do that. But, I want to uh, know now. now you, you, that just made me want to know, like, what other games would even need such things? Yeah. What other games is there a written record by a fan who is simply attending the game with no professional uh, requirement to record the action or whatever. They just, you know, and I, and I hear from a lot of people who uh, will say, Hey, on, on my dad's birthday, 10 years after he passed away, I was at the ballpark and my favorite player hit a home run. And that's a great memory for me. You know, and when I hear, when I hear things like that, it, it really makes me feel good because I, I feel like Matt, at least to a certain extent, and I'm not taking credit all the credit for this of course but to a certain extent with the book and the fact that people can have a written record we're keeping the art of scoring baseball games alive whether it's with a number two pencil uh you know when i was a kid and we went to games at old old bush stadium to watch our beloved cardinals i think for 10 cents you could buy a scorecard and you got a white pencil that had a little cardinal on it and I just thought that, you know, as a kid, I thought that was the coolest thing in the world. Wow, I've got a pencil that's got a cardinal on it. You know, that's pretty cool. That'd be like a kid in Chicago, you know, yeah. with the C for the Cubs on it or the Sox on it. Uh, you know, you take that to school. Hey, look what I got at the ballpark, you know. And um, I still, I, Bob, I still, Bob, when I go to Wrigley, because now I'm addicted to scoring. So even when I'm in the stands now, now that I've gotten into it, there's – there's something about it that makes me more mindful, makes me pay more attention to the game, yes. makes me feel more connected to the game. And it's uh, I, I've, I've grown to really enjoy it in, in the stands at Wrigley. You can only go into the 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 store, um, into the merchandise store to get a scorecard and a pencil. Now, they don't have the, the booth. They used to be yeah. somebody standing right there, like two bucks for a scorecard and a pencil or whatever it was on the way in. Yeah. So it, 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 it's more difficult to access now, but you can still do it. A lot of people still do it. Well, and it's interesting. You just brought back a memory for me because I remember walking into the ballpark in St. Louis and there was a little kiosk. I didn't know what a kiosk was back then, Yeah. but you know, some little wooden stand and I can still hear the guy. He was going scorecards, lineups, Cardinal yearbooks, sporting news. He was selling all four of those things wow. in his little kiosk. So you could get the scorecard, you know, it, which featured the lineup. He had the sporting news right there. You know, yep. it, it was just, uh, you know, he had the Cardinal yearbook there. And uh, that, that was pretty cool. So, yeah, yeah you know. Sporting, um, sporting news was the only place you could get box scores of other exactly. games at the time. Yeah, 
you know, as well as your local newspaper. If And if your team was on the West Coast, then you had to wait an extra day yes. being in the central time zone like we were. But I got uh, – this is a really interesting story. Years ago when I was still at the Cardinals, I'm thinking maybe it was around, I don't know, 98, 99, 2000, somewhere in there. They had their winter warm-up in St. Louis, which is, you know, their version of Cubs convention and um, <clears throat> other winter events that other teams do. And they had me do a, uh, a seminar on scoring. And, um, you know, they, and I don't know what the guy was thinking. Uh, it was in one of the, it, you know, the, the whole Cardinal winter warmup was at this big hotel downtown by the ballpark. <clears throat> and they gave me a meeting room for the seminar, which probably you probably get 100 or 150 people in there. And on the pro on the on the program and then on this sign outside the the uh, the door, they did they did this big sign that said uh, two to two, two to three p.m. How to score with Bob Carpenter. And I'm like, <laughs> could you have worded could you have worded that a little differently, please? And anyway, <laughs> we uh you know, once I got over the shock of seeing that sign as I walked past it into the room, I, uh, you know, we got in there and it was really fun. I mean, we had a great time. Uh, it was as much the fans talking to me and asking me questions as much as it was, you know, me giving them my thoughts on scoring. In fact, it was really funny because uh, an ex-Cardinal who also pits for the White Sox, uh, who was a St. Louis guy who I had worked with on ESPN, Jerry Royce, ended sure. up walking. Jerry walked by the room and he saw the sign and, you know, Jerry's a real wise guy. He was a great practical joker and everything when he was with the Dodgers. I mean, stories about him and Tommy Lasorda irritating each other are just legend out there. Well, anyway, Jerry comes barging into the seminar right in the middle of it and everybody recognizes him, of course. I mean, the guy's six, six and he's got the blonde hair and you know, and, uh, you know, I looked up and here comes Jerry Royce and Jerry Royce announces to the crowd, hey, folks, sorry to barge in, but I want to find out how I can score with Bob Carpenter. <laughs> so anyway, at the end of this seminar, <clears throat> this gentleman comes up to me and he's got his daughter with him and she's maybe, I don't know, 12, 13 years old. And they waited. Pay I could kind of see him out of the corner of my eye. They waited patiently while I was talking to people and, you know, some people wanted me to sign the book and they had Jerry signing their book. And this guy finally comes up to me and says, Bob, he said, I, I want to thank you for this scorebook. He said, um, I, I've taught my daughter how to keep score. He said, we will sit on the couch now on a, on a uh, summer evening or, a, you know, a Saturday or a Sunday afternoon, you know, we're not even at the game. We're watching on TV, but we're sitting down with your scorebook. And I showed her how to keep score. And now she's doing all of her own little notations and her little stick figures and all this stuff. And he said, we're having a, a lot of fun with this. And he said, it dawned on me, I'm spending quality time with my daughter huh. scoring these baseball games that maybe, you know, she, we never even would have thought of, you know, we're spending time together as, as, as a dad and his daughter. And he's telling me this story and I got tears coming out of my eyes, you know? Sure. Sure. I mean, I was so touched by that and I'll be darned if about six, five or six years later, uh, the Cardinals caravan 
which is, you know, the winter thing where the team went around to different towns and, and did autograph signings and all that. We were in Joplin, Missouri at Missouri Southern University, and we were doing something in the big auditorium there, and I was emceeing, and some of our players were there. Well, at the end of the thing, this young lady walks up to me, and she says, uh, hey, you probably don't remember me, but uh, I'm a freshman here at Missouri Southern now. I wanted to get, I want to get into journalism. I want to get into broadcasting because I'm that little girl that huh. came up to you with my dad at the winter warm-up like six, seven years ago. And she said, thanks, thanks to my love of baseball, my dad and your scorebook, <clears throat> you know, I want to pursue a career in broadcasting. So here I cut, you know, here again, I got tears coming out of my eyes, you know, it's beautiful, you know, and over the years I've heard from different people around the country. Um, it was really weird. Uh, one year, a guy contacted me through my website. He said, my wife and I were moving recently and we, I had a scorebook of yours that had a bunch of pictures in it of my mom and dad. And, um, you know, it, it, it had games that I had scored, special notations. He said, we lost the book while we were moving. He said, I don't know where it is. He said, if anybody would happen to return that book to you, because, you know, my, my address is on the outside of the book, our Tulsa address, where we ship from. He said, I know it's a million to one shot, but if that book ever gets returned, will you keep my address and send it to me? I said, yeah, yeah, sure. Well, I'll be darned if about a couple of months later, a book shows up in my mailbox in Tulsa, just out of nowhere. And the guy puts a little note and says, hey, I found this scorebook or whatever this book is. He said, I thought I would return it because maybe somebody wants this. I contacted the guy and he was just so emotional. And I sent him that book and then I sent him another new one with it. And, you know, Matt, those are things that happen that you would never even think of ahead of time. I never thought about stuff like that. Yeah. I was just trying to I was just trying to come up with something to make my job a little bit easier. And and here you end up meeting people all over the country. People I, I've had orders from uh, Great Britain, from Europe, South America, Central America, Puerto Rico, Venezuela, uh, Japan. We've sent books all over the world. And, um, you know, and obviously a lot of books to Canada every year because of the uh, Blue Jays. And there's still some, you know, frustrated Expos fans up there. But these are things that happen that show you what a community the game of baseball is and uh, what a close knit group it can be, even though we're spread out all over the country and in some cases all over the world. That's those are wonderful stories. Thank you for sharing those. And it's it, it it's the connectivity of the community, but it's also you got you got to the, the, the deepest and the most real of, of human emotions and our and our desire to connect with people. And it, it's a, it's it's an amazing legacy um, that that you'll be that that you'll be leaving that 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 you're also feeling actively here it's incredible i uh and you've always had a passion for this or maybe it's grown didn't you do a game towards the end of the national season i think it was 2021 where you spent the whole game kind of demonstrating how to score through the broadcast of of, of a game yeah and i i give a lot of credit um at the time to our our video production crew at the ballpark i mean these are the I think they call it Curly W Productions or something like that. And they're the ones who actually put all the stuff up on our video board. <clears throat> a, a very creative 
group of young people. I mean, they got their own control room. The thing is, it looks like you could run a network, you know, a national network out of this control room. They're they're all really good at what they do. And uh, they came to me with the idea and they said, hey, we want to we want to do some videos. And uh, so we uh, we we did some other videos that were not live uh like, uh, you know, great moments in national's history, Steven Strasburg's first big league game back in 2010. And obviously that that's back in the news now with uh, the Washington Post re- reporting yesterday that Steven is probably going to announce his retirement in September. But, you know, we went back through that game. Uh, I sat down at a table in one of the suites up there. They had a camera over my shoulder. They int- uh, they interviewed me while they were showing highlights of that game. And we did, I think, about a 10 or 15-minute piece on what that night was like. Uh, Mac, one of, you know, Max Scherzer's no-hitters. He threw two of those. He had a 20-strikeout game against yeah. the Tigers. You know, Ryan Zimmerman walk-off hits. And uh, the Nationals in 2019 scoring seven runs in the bottom of the ninth inning against the Mets to come from nowhere <clears throat> to win a ball game with Kurt Suzuki hitting a walk-off homer. And then, of course, a month and a half later, they're world champions. So, you know, the it was their idea. <clears throat> and then our wonderful producer on our TV games in uh, D.C., Chip Winfield, he was like, I think that's a great idea. We need to do this. So we we literally spent the whole night doing the game. They had a cameraman over my shoulder. Now, you know, uh, he wasn't recording every single thing I wrote down. But if there was an unusual play or if there was a double play, because I'll write down DP 643, mm-hmm. but the, the runner above that, I'll also take that runner and I'll X him out at second base and then draw kind of a curvy line down to the 643. So, so you can look at that thing and say, okay, that's, you know, the runner was on first. He went to second. I draw an X with a little circle around it, which means he was retired. And, uh, you know, just little nuances like that. Uh, Back back when I was in St. Louis, a guy showed me something many years ago. In fact, I stole this one from Mike Shannon. Uh, Mike, uh, if there was a guy got a base hit, he would draw a line with one short line through it for a single, two lines for a double, three lines for a triple, and yeah. then, of course, if it was a Homer HR, but um, I kind of stole that idea. And then I love that. Guy- uh, I, I, use, I use that, and I wouldn't have done it without you and, and without the book. I love yeah. that. The other thing of yours that, that I love, I, I think it's yours, is, is the arc of the ball um, on a, on a was, single. Yeah. So I, I can look back and see, because you use the bottom middle of the box as, as home plate, and then however the hit went, I can – and now I've gotten good at putting the arc in there so I can say, oh, yeah, he looped that one to left. Yes. Um, because, and, and yeah, then, and that was yeah. the next thing I was going to tell you about oh, because a guy, a guy showed me, he, he said, I track the direction of the hits. And I said, you know, and it just it's like the light bulb went out or went on for me because let's say we had Daniel Murphy for a couple of years in D.C. The guy was an absolute hit machine and he used the entire ballpark in September. I could go back to a four hit game he had in April and I could say, yeah, the first time up, he hit the ball to to left center for a double. Then they tried to pitch him inside and he pulled one down the right field line. (laughs) Then they tried to pitch him away and he took one up the middle. And then his last time up, he hit the ball out of the ballpark to right center. Yeah. I mean, for a broadcaster and, and, and a fan too, those kind of details are invaluable because we often go back through the book and look at games that have been played previously. And in some cases, 
a couple of months before that. So, yeah, that's where I came up with that idea. And then, you know, if it's a hard hit, that line will be pretty straight. If it's a bloop, I'll draw a yep. little bloopy line like you said. And, I'm, you know, that's that's cool that you picked up on that. And the other thing that I started doing that I never saw anybody else doing, let's say a guy had a, a single to right center for, for two runs, um, you know, I would draw that line, but then at the at the lower left part of the box, I would I would draw two dots, and that means those are the RBIs. So you could, without having to track any other runners mm-hmm. after the game or at a later time, you could look at that box, and you would know that Daniel Murphy hit that ball to right center field in the sixth inning, and those two dots means he drove in two runs with that hits, uh, with that hit, and that's something. That's another detail that I kind of thought of uh, myself. I don't know if anybody else was doing that or if they do it, but uh, that's very helpful to me when we're looking back in a ball game, and I can look at that and boom, I know immediately he drove in two runs with that swing. Yep, I I, I do RBIs in the top right corner, but it, but I definitely got it from you uh, without a doubt. Those little dots. Can I tell you about an innovation that my nephew suggested? Um, Absolutely. I'm always thinking, you know, I'm always open to new ideas, of course. Well, well, but this is this is just a different usage for the four boxes on, on the bottom, the two boxes for for bullpen and bench um, and uh, for each team. Because I have access to that on an app that I might be tracking or, you know, benches are so small now. I know who the benches are but for for me. I was trying to expand my vocabulary. So he suggested something that he used to do, which is on the bottom left, he did soft contact on the ground. And then in the bullpen, he did hard contact on the ground. Then for the, the, the home team bench, he did soft contact in the air and the home team bullpen, hard contact in the air and wrote down all the different euphemisms you might use. I've blooped, poked, <laughs> placed, lined, lofted, looped, popped, skied, muscled, smacked, wrote, wow. shot, bounced, chopped. So like all the synonyms just to just to put it out there in the ether and make it available for my head as I hopefully grow more comfortable and competent saying what I see and using those words. So it's just a, a just a nice use of the space that a, a 25-year-old AAA broadcaster in Indianapolis is doing, and now I've picked up on using your book. That's pretty cool. I think his uh, vocabulary has al- already exceeded my capabilities. <laughs> and, uh, you know, but that that's good. And that's the thing. You know, there's – and, and in the broadcast book, <clears throat> not the fan book, but in the broadcast book, which is bigger – on the right side page there, you know, there's a box in the upper right hand corner there. And there's all, you know, there's all, I just left that intentionally blank. Uh, you can, you can fill in all yes. kind of team, team things in there. I use that like tonight, the nationals are playing the Miami Marlins and I'll use part of that box for the season series between the two, uh, the all time series between the two and any other miscellaneous information like, you know, we, we have a, a kid on our team this year who's just having a great year, uh, our right fielder, Lane Thomas. And when I write Lane in, in the number two spot in the lineup, often there's not enough room in that box to write out all the things that he's doing because he's in the top 10 in batting average, hits, total bases, doubles, extra base hits. Uh, the guy's just, you know, the guy's just having an, an amazing season. So sometimes I'll just write Thomas 
over in that box with my red pen. And I color code, you know, because like tonight, the Nats will be red. The Marlins will be blue. Mm. Same thing when we play the Cubs. We play the White Sox. You know, they're going to be black ink. The Nats are going to be red ink. Uh, that That's a kind of a throwback to my ESPN days when I was doing three or four basketball games a week. And color coding is what kept my, um, you know, dyslexic mind from getting confused when, uh, you know, when I was uh, doing all these different teams like, you know, six to eight teams in one week if you're doing three to four games. Sure. So anyway, I'll take, I'll take some of that information about a certain hitter or a certain pitcher or something the team's doing and write that in that box over on that right-hand page. So I, I intentionally leave that thing blank just to let everybody have some room to write in all those notes that, that they may need to during a game. Bob, um, I mean, see you later is such a phenomenal home run call mm. and so distinct and simple at the same time. It, it, it's what it's supposed to be. When I, when I ask you to think of a Nationals home run of consequence, a moment that you had in the booth that you love, that we should go back and pull and listen to, what's, what's the first thing that comes to mind? I know that's large. Yeah, for a home run call, it might be that Kurt Suzuki three-run homer against Edwin Diaz against the Mets in September of 19. Kurt Suzuki, see you later! The Nets have won it! Seven runs in the bottom of the ninth! Given the fact that we were in a pennant race, and I'm sure Pat Hughes would tell you the same thing, you know, Jason Benetti would say say the same thing. You know, all the guys who do play by play and um, the situation often is what makes the call or the event, you know, what it is. So, you know, for one home run call, uh, that would probably be it for me. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, and you may not believe this, Matt. I've never called a postseason game on TV in my life um, because we, you know, us local yes. TV guys, we get shut out uh, once the playoffs come and, and we're not on TV. Uh, I did get to do four uh, NLCS games on radio for the Cardinals in 1996 against the Braves. Uh, Jack wasn't feeling well, and they put me on with Mike Shannon for games four, five, six, and seven. Uh, we won game four, and unfortunately, we lost the next three to lose a chance to go to the World Series against the Yankees. So that was a bitter disappointment for me. Mm-hmm. But uh, uh, you know, so the so a pennant race and uh, those big moments. I, I know that uh, Brian Jordan hit a home run in Game Four of that series, and I got to call that that helped beat the Braves. That was probably my biggest moment ever on radio. Hmm. And um, you know, and then other things uh, when I think about the Nationals, uh, Jordan Zimmerman throwing a no hitter on the last day of the season, the last batted ball of the season. In I think it was 2014, Christian Yelich hits a line drive to left center. Steven Souza Jr., who is one of a whole bunch of AAA and uh, you know major league bench guys that were in the game at that time, because it was the last game of the season and it meant nothing in the standings. But Jordan Zimmerman had a no hitter going. He and Wilson Ramos, the catcher, were the only two guys on the field at the end of the game who were on the field at the start of the game. Everybody else. <laughs> Everybody else was like AAA call-ups or some of our backup players. Uh, my, my current broadcast partner, Kevin Franzen, was on the field uh, for that final out. Anyway, Steven Souza Jr. goes into the gap in left center and dives and makes an unbelievable catch. 
on the very last split second of the entire season. Kristen Yelich is 0 for 3 today. And a ball driven to left center. Souza. He's got it! He's got it! It's a no-hitter for Jordan Zimmerman! Wow. I mean, that's for going to the playoffs. Uh, but they were resting their guys. They didn't know there was going to be a no-hitter that day. And um, he makes that catch, and that's that's a no-hitter. Then Max Scherzer comes along. He throws two no-hitters and a 20-strikeout game uh, in his time with the Nationals and, you know, wins some Cy Youngs and other moments. But, you know, those are the ones that stick out. And uh, whenever it's the anniversary of one of those games and our, our crew rolls in that highlight of Souza diving for that ball, you know, I, I, I'm not going to sit here and tell you I don't love listening to that, you know, um, you know, because I do. And, yes. you know, and I think I put a pretty good call on it and uh, it was exciting. And then in the spirit of good television, I laid out for quite a while. You know, Vin Scully talked about that after he called the Kirk Gibson home run uh, against Dennis Eckersley in the World Series that year. Vinny called it. He put a great call on it. And then he shut up. Let the director and the producer and the crowd and the players do their thing. And that's what I did then. I, I probably shut up for the better part of a minute. And I just sat there and calmly totaled out my scorebook because I didn't want to say anything that would take away from that moment. And to me, that's an important part of doing play-by-play. Nothing irritates me more than a play-by-play guy or an analyst who will take a moment like that when the crowd's going crazy, the players are jumping up and down, the producer is doing his or her thing, the director the same thing, the crew is showing you that moment. Those are moments, Matt, that don't always need words. Now, if you're on radio, yeah, you need the words, maybe with a shorter layout and some crowd noise. But when you're on TV as an announcer, you cannot ruin those moments by are you kidding me? Or, you know, oh, I can't believe, you know, nobody wants to hear that at that time. They want to experience the moment as if they're in the ballpark. And that's my job as a play-by-play guy. And I think in those moments, we were able to do that. That's great stuff. That's great stuff. Um, All right. You've been very generous with your time. I just want to ask you a couple of quickies here. I have a bunch of different questions that I've asked most of my guests. Um, is there a specific item that you always like to have in the booth? Can be a good luck charm or a talisman or just anything that absolutely has to be there for you, sir? You know, I, I use a straight edge uh, quite a bit, uh, if you can tell, you know, because I X out players. And uh, so my, my good luck charm <laughs> is a credential from the previous year that has my wife's picture on it. Oh, because. Because, you know, we, we get a credential, yep. uh, you know, we get a family credential so that my wife and the kids can come up to the booth when they're in town and all that. So, uh, in fact, I'm looking at it right now on my desk here. Uh, it's, a, it's a family pass. It says Debbie Carpenter on it, and it's got her picture on it. And that's my good luck charm that I use during the game. Um, use that as a ruler, as a straight edge. It, yeah. And, you know, and before before that, you know, I'd, I'd hold on to hotel keys and use those. And, and, <laughs> and, and when, you know, when they would get jagged, then then I would, you know, I'd get rid of those and get a new one. But, uh, yeah, that's kind of my good luck charm. And, you know, oh, it's I interesting. It. I, I think you were going to ask me about the see you later home run call. Yes. And we got I and naturally in in because it's what I do. I took us down a rabbit hole there about some of the other stuff. But um 
when I was with the Texas Rangers in the late eighties, we had a bunch of home run hitters, Bobby Valentine managed that team, uh, Pete O'Brien, first base, Larry Parrish, third base, uh, Ruben Sierra, young switch hitter, uh, Pete Incavilla, the kid from Oklahoma State who never played one day in the minor leagues. Odeby McDowell in center field who played in the uh, outfield at Arizona State with Barry Bonds and Mike Devereaux. We had a bunch of home run hitters on that team. So when they would hit a home run, I'd just kind of go, see you later, you know. And uh, that kind of became my home run call. Many years later when I was in St. Louis, here comes Mark McGuire. And the wall, the ones that he hit, were in the air for so long and went so far. That's that's when I started taking that home run call and started going, see you, you know, later, literally waiting for the ball to come down. McGuire with 30 homers, 76 runs batted in. High fastball, see you later, grand slam. And that's when I started really drawing out the home run call People seem to respond to that, and that's how that happened, and that's what I've been doing ever since. Oh, that's great. I, I, I love hearing the, the way that that happened. Yeah, McGuire, M- McGuire's would go high and far and take a while, and, and, and it pushed you along. That's awesome. Um, give me a broadcaster that you admired in your youth and one whose work you admire now. Um, I'm, I'm – I, you may not know this by listening to me, but I, I always kind of get attracted toward the guys who are what I would call maybe the minimalists. And Jack Buck was that guy. Uh, Jack had a way of saying a lot in very few words. Hmm. And because of that, Matt, he and Harry Carey were the perfect broadcast combo in St. Louis because Harry, you know, he couldn't talk enough. Jack was totally different than Harry. Jack had a real dry humor. And, you know, and I later found out personally, he could bust your chops and you didn't even know it until you thought about it for a minute. And then he would just look at you. And, you know, Jack was just that kind of guy. And every night when the game was, and this isn't when Harry was long gone off to, uh, I think he went to Oakland and then the White Sox and then the Cubs. People forget Harry was in Oakland for a short time after he left St. Louis. But, so Harry was gone and Jack was, you know, he was the number one guy when he signed off at night after the ball game, he would say so long for just a while. Yeah. And I kind of, that that's what I say on the air after the Nats lose a ball game. If they win, you know, I drop another see you later on them. But every night when Jack Buck said so long for just a while, you were sad that the game was over and that the broadcast was over. Jack always left you wanting more. And I think that's a tremendous trait in a broadcaster. We have so many young people coming up now, Matt, because of the internet, analytics, they have all this information. And by golly, they're going to get that. They're going to cram that into the broadcast. And as broadcasters, we got to be careful. We can wear people out with all that stuff. So I try to, my job, I feel, when I sign off every night, I want our fans to feel good, win or lose, about being a Nationals fan. Because even if we lose, and we had a bad game a couple of nights ago at Yankee Stadium, but we're still going to pull some positives out of that. But I, I always want to leave the audience wanting a little more. And I think Jack was the master of hmm. that. Um, on a local level, um, you know, and obviously 
Vin Scully spans the past and almost the present, because to me, Vinny was the standard um, for everybody. You know, Jack was not that successful. Now, radio he was on Monday Night Football, but Jack and some other guys were not as successful on a national scale, um, you know, as uh, as Vinny was, because, you know, Vinny ended up on TV calling World Series. And, uh, you know, so Jack, in my opinion, was one of the greatest ever on radio. Vinny, kind of a radio and TV thing he had going. And uh, of some of the modern day guys, uh, I'm really attracted to Al Michaels. I think Al is one of those guys who doesn't beat you over the head. He's not on the air, you know, hollering and screaming. Uh, Al always kind of leaves you wanting more. I think Jim Nance is the best. Jim Nance and Bob Costas would be the best hosts that we've ever had. Uh, I think there are better play-by-play guys than those two. But, I mean, you're talking Vince Scully and Al Michael. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. You're you're in the pantheon. You're in the pantheon here. I mean, you know, those guys are floating around in their own, you know, stratosphere up there. Uh, You know, but, uh, you know, those are guys who want you, who make you want to pull up a chair and listen to them forever. They're Mm -hmm. that good. Costas is probably the best interviewer uh, that I've ever heard. I mean, he has just has a way of connecting with people and pulling unbelievable information out of them. You know, and then when I think about some of my uh, friends that are local guys, uh, you know, Pat Hughes is a dear friend. And I, I was really glad that I got to see Pat the very week. He won the Ford Frick Award. We were in Chicago uh, about, what, a month and a half ago, uh, right before Pat went to Cooperstown, so I'm glad I got to see him. Uh, Howie Rose of the Mets and I have become very good friends over the years. Uh, there are really good broadcasters all over baseball, but those are the two guys I've probably had the best friendships with over the years just because I see them so much, especially sure. Howie, you know, because we're in the same division. But, you know, bottom line is, Matt, I'm kind of attracted to the guys who don't beat you over the head for two and a half or three hours, Jack Buck, Al Michaels, and those are the guys who leave you wanting more when that game is over. Yeah, but the you know, the the so long for just a while, it 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 tells people that this feeling of the loss that you have is not gonna last because that's the beauty of of the sport and the season is that you get to do it again. So it's it's one last little moment of comfort on the way out the door, isn't it? That's the way I intend it, and that's really um, – that's very good of you to pick up on that. Um, and, you know, and then, of course, when you win, see you later. You know, we're having yeah, fun. Yeah. You know, that – it's like, you know – Hold on. We're, we're as happy as we can be, mm-hmm. and uh, let's enjoy it. And, you know, we're going to be – Pretty soon we're going to be putting our head on that pillow and uh, we're going to have a good feeling about our ball club that night. So, you know, and and that's really come into focus for me with our team struggling since 2019, because 2020, the pandemic season was brutal for everybody. Then in 21, we end up trading Max Scherzer and Trey Turner. In 22, we trade Juan Soto. But now we've got all these good young players that we got for those guys and we're rebuilding our ball club. And uh, you know, Chicago got, got a manager got a got a manager with an extension. You got Davey a, Martinez, who's one of the greatest guys you'll ever know. You know, awesome. he's got a Chicago connection because he played yep. for the Cubs, and he was on that staff with Joe Madden and Mike Rizzo, our GM. His dad, Phil, tough, hard nosed, old school baseball guys from the Windy City. Uh, yep. You know, I've really enjoyed getting to know Mike over the years, and uh, I t- I got to tell you a story about Phil. Because we would see him in the press dining room 
in at Wrigley whenever the Nats were in town. And I always knew how to get Phil going because if we struck out seven or eight times the night before, Phil would get so worked up, he'd go, swing the blankety blank bat. And you know, <laughs> you, you can fill in the blank there. But that was Phil. He he was I just love talking baseball with that guy. And uh, you know, sometimes I was late getting into the booth because I wanted to sit out there and soak in stuff from, you know, Phil Rizzo, the same way I did in St. Louis when I was a young broadcaster. I used to hang out in the press box when I wasn't broadcasting. If I had a couple of innings off or if I had a night off, I was hanging out with Bing Devine, the old GM who built those Cardinal teams back in the 60s. I was hanging out with Neil Russo from the Globe Democrat, Bob Bragg from the St. Louis Post-Dispatch. I wanted to soak in as much as I can from those guys who've been there, done that. So my message to young broadcasters out there, you may think you know everything about analytics and stats, but there's a million things out there you don't know about the history of the game and things that happened while you were in diapers or before you came along. You need to seek out the guys who've been around for a long time to keep some of those stories alive and to regale your audience with some of those stories whenever you can. That's uh, that's a great place to, to cap it there, Bob Carpenter. Um I, I, I thank you so much for the time and you're, you're doing beautiful work with the scorebook. I love that you're feeling the personal connection of the stories that you shared at the beginning of the conversation. And, and, um, and, and thanks for this, um, th- this role that you're playing in, in, in the continuation of the language and the continuation of the relationship uh, to the game. Well, Matt, thanks for having me on. And uh, thanks to Ryan uh, for getting you and I together and hooking this, this whole thing up. Uh, It's really been a pleasure, and I will see you later. Oh, man, he got me. I didn't see it coming. Probably does that to everyone, don't you think, at the end of every conversation? I'll get you someday, Bob Carpenter. What a sweet guy, that man. Meticulous, focused, but also emotional. I enjoyed him enjoying the stories of human connection that the scorebook has brought into his life and the origin story of his see you later home run call mark mcguire hitting them so long and so high that the pauses just developed naturally and now it's a staple good stuff all right next week on the pvp told you i was dying to tell you the man who has come up more than any other broadcaster when young broadcasters and middle-aged broadcasters talk about the great ones working today this is Joe Davis's guy that he referenced. It's Boog Shambi's guy. Maybe he's your guy as well. John Miller of the San Francisco Giants is our guest. I can't believe we got him. Been a prime target since the day this podcast idea was born. Next week on the PBP, John Miller. My producer is Ryan Porth. My collaborator here is James Vickery. The theme music on the PBP comes from the great Kurt Morrison of Tributosaurus. Find the PBP Voices of Baseball on the Odyssey app and wherever you get your podcasts. From 2400 Sports, Odyssey, and Major League Baseball. The PBP Voices of Baseball. I'll bring you the people who bring you the game. <laughs>